2014 is right around the corner and we've got your best financials ideas. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. We've got another one of our special, our holiday specials here. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. David, we're talking best ideas in the financial sector for 2014. Let's Just go ahead and get started. Your first best idea. Capital One. That is my first (laughs) best idea. And for for regular listeners of the show, you're probably going to hear about a lot of banks we talk about often because these are our best. Some of these were our best ideas in 2013, continue to be today. Um, So Capital One's my first. I think it's a very reasonably priced bank right now, trading at 1.6 times tangible book. I think return on equity will be in low teens, return on equity. Will be in the low to mid teens going forward. They've been a bank that's grown pretty rapidly over the last decade or so. They're at a size that they're pretty comfortable with. They're going to be more focused on dividends and buybacks. I don't think the market's giving them enough credit for that. There's basically, I mean, there is a dividend today, but it's nothing substantial. There hasn't been a lot of buybacks. I think going forward, that will be a good driver. And they have very good capital ratios. They're in a position where they can go to the Fed, ask for bigger dividends, and I think they should be able to get it. Good leadership with Richard Fairbank. Good valuation. Capital One, best idea for 2014 and beyond. So are you, you're comfortable with the transition that they've made from being primarily credit cards to being more of a full, full-fledged bank? Right. Well, you could, you could say that they're still primarily credit cards right, right. because it's that's kind of their biggest loan part of their portfolio there. But yeah, I'm very comfortable with it because you're still going to get good returns there. They're going to have a good net interest margin from their credit card business, but it's not going to be totally reliant on the credit atmosphere in terms of consumers that have the business loans now. So... Definitely comfortable with it. All right. Well, I've categorized my best ideas. And the first group, there's two of them in this group. First one is best comebacks. And the first of the best comebacks is AIG. (laughs) AIG currently trading at 0.75 times tangible book value. Is that high? That is low. That uh, That is dirt cheap. And the reason it's dirt cheap is AIG's returns just aren't all that attractive right now. They're in the, the mid-single digits, and if, the, if those mid-single digits type of returns continued out indefinitely, that would, be, that would probably be a relatively reasonable valuation for AIG, yep. uh, discount to tangible book value. I don't see that continuing. The, the company continues to work to focus in on its core businesses. We finally saw it sell off its aircraft leasing business. I wasn't concerned about that, but it's just nice to see that wrapped up. The, the insurance businesses, meanwhile, continue to recover, and those, I believe, will continue to improve based on uh, the fundamentals in the insurance market have been better, in the primary insurance market in particular. Uh, the, the improvement in the housing market helps the mortgage insurance business at AIG, and the improving stock market helps both the, the investment returns uh, for AIG, as well as its prospects for selling within its life insurance business. CEO Robert Ben Moshe came out and said, hey, I know we were giving you guys guidance in terms of we want to reach 10% return on equity by, I don't, can't remember. 20, if it was, I think it was 2015, 2015 I, or 2016. I think that's right. I think it was 2015. And he said, hey, we're no longer going to do that. Sorry. The market didn't like it. I think the stock was down 3 4% that day. Is that a concern to you that they're not giving guidance anymore? Or is that just well, Wall Street freaking out the, for no reason? The key was is that it wasn't guidance. It was, it was a, goal a goal for the company. So it was, he was trying to, to put numbers to it, and that's the direction that that was suggesting directionality. Mm -hmm. So what he said um, is as we're getting closer to that 2015 deadline, he believed that Wall Street would be looking for guidance 
specific guidance as far as when they were going to hit it, and he did not want to provide that. So that's that's what I took away from what he said. You could say that he's he's backing away from it, but I think directionally that's still where the company's moving. So I still believe that the the turnaround and the comeback is in effect. So AIG's obviously had a good run. Do you see this more as consistent solid returns, or is this a stock that looks like it could double in the next year? Uh, not in the next year. I, I think over over three, three, four years, mm-hmm. it's possible that we could see a double because it's a combination of the valuation will continue to improve, the valuation multiple will continue to climb as the company repairs itself, but also as those returns improve, you're going to see growth in the book value. So we're talking about a book value multiple here. Mm-hmm. So the book value multiple will increase, but the book value will also increase. So you've got that double whammy that can lead to nice returns. A good double whammy. A good double whammy. Yeah, double whammies aren't always good, I guess. Sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they're... That sounds like a really bad whammy there. (laughs) That was a Uh, bad whammy. All right. What's your next idea? Next idea, very similar to my first idea. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit boring. PNC. Regular listeners know this is one of my favorite banks with the leadership, with the vision that they have going forward. Also, a pretty reasonable multiple 1.5 times tangible book with double-digit returns. I think the price looks good today. This is a five-year story. I know we're talking about best ideas for 2014. I don't know if this stock's going to be an absolute beast in 2014, but I think over the next five years, I'm pretty confident it's going to beat the market. That multiple could expand, but even if it doesn't expand, I think there can still be good returns here. I think they can grow book value 12% a year, even if that doesn't move up. I think you're still getting good returns. They're taking a lot of expenses out of the system, rehauling their branch network. They're focusing on the wealth management business, which is a good business in terms of returns on how much you're investing in the business. So I think they're focusing on the right things. The multiple could expand. If it does, that's great. But if not, I think you can still get good returns over the next five years. Sweet. Well, I'll go ahead and get on to my next one. Do it. Uh, this is another comeback story. This is Citigroup. Citigroup, another cheap one, trading at 0.95 times tangible book value, so a slight discount to tangible book value. Same story here as AIG from the perspective that returns right now are low. And again, if you project those returns out into the future, that discount to tangible book value would make sense. However, what I really like about Citigroup is its leadership, is its vision, is its strategy. Uh, Michael Corbat and Chairman Mike O'Neill... Uh, I think are the right people to lead a comeback of uh, of Citigroup and sort of a turnaround back to being a bank focused bank, but not not a U.S. not what we think of as a U.S. bank focused bank like say a Wells Fargo for instance. Mm-hmm. This is a very global operation, and the strategy that they have can be summed up in three words. And I like a simple I like a simple strategy that can be summed up like that: globalization, urbanization, digitization. Yep. It's maybe, maybe a little gimmicky with all the... Zations. There's a lot of zations in there. But globalization, uh, it's, it's a global world, and, and uh, multinational companies uh, want to be able to do business all over the world, not just in their home country. Um, and Citigroup is, able, is on the ground in so many different places around the world. Uh, the urbanization is part of that. More and more people are moving to urban centers. And so this is part of uh, Citigroup's sort of ration, uh, rationalization strategy. In that anotherization. Anotherization. There yeah. you go. I'm on a roll. Uh, they're trimming their locations that are outside these big urban centers. They want to concentrate where the real business is going to be. 
And finally, the, the digitization. It's a little tricky one. Um, this isn't just about mobile banking and online banking, but it's a lot about mobile banking and online banking. The online world, the digital world, is impacting uh, banking in a very big way, and Citigroup is is one of the big banks that's harnessing that and using that to its advantage. I agree. I think the I'm not the biggest fan of Citigroup. I think you like it a little bit more than me. But I am a fan of their focus on the cities. They want to find the biggest 150 cities in the world and dominate those cities. I think that's the right move. One, actually, one other thing I should point out on Citigroup, too, is there are some, some hidden levers in here for City. One of the big ones is its deferred tax assets. Mm-hmm. It has a gigantic deferred tax asset on its balance sheet. It has to hold capital against that deferred tax asset, even though it is not, those, aren't earning a, those aren't earning assets the way a loan is. Uh, so as it works down those earning assets, that'll help returns improve. If you strip those out, returns, Citigroup's returns on equity look a whole lot better. So working down those deferred a- tax assets will be a big lever for improving uh, returns going forward. Very fun accounting games. Very fun accounting games. Awesome. Next idea. All right, going with another one of the big four U.S. banks, J.P. Morgan Chase. Not the prettiest year in 2013 for J.P. Morgan from a business and reputation perspective, but the stock was fine. I think it beat the market, if I'm not mistaken. I may be mistaken. I make a lot of mistakes. I'd have to go back. Um, I think the cloud of disaster will slowly dissipate, and people are going to realize how much money this bank really makes. We're not even in that great of a time for banks to make money, and they're making a lot of money if they can make more interest for, from their loans, from their investments, that's a boost. They're taking costs out of the system. That's a boost. Investment banking can pick up. I think we could be pretty amazed the returns that this bank can generate, 15% return on equity. I don't think that's out of the question at all consistently. At this valuation, I think you have to ignore, ignore the noise, and you will be happy over the next three to five years with J.P. Morgan. Is the sober, chastened Jamie Dimon at CEO a concern for you that he doesn't have the, he doesn't have the vim, the, uh, the spit, if you will, that he did a year ago? It would be nice if he did, but it's not a concern. There's still a lot of smart people working there. They're going to please their clients. That's Dimon's problem, or maybe not problem, but he's really passionate about serving the client and he sounds annoyed on all these calls because it's stopping the bank from interacting with their clients and making more barriers for them to get their job done so i think he's just very passionate about getting the job done and as this stuff goes away the the lawsuits and such they'll be able to do that better all right moving on to my next idea this is going to sound familiar continuing with my categorization this is my best it's not as bad as you think idea and it is jp morgan you don't even need to say anything I don't. I, I will. I will add one other. I will add one other note to all the great stuff that you said. If you back out the legal settlements over the past twelve months, uh, what I would say, if you just look at the raw numbers over the last twelve months, J.P. Morgan looks like it has a return on equity of nine percent. Back out those uh, legal settlements, and you're looking at closer to twelve point five percent, something in mm-hmm. that range. Impressive, indeed. What's your next idea? Already? Wow. Don't need. Well, to yeah, we, I, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to bore people reiterating what you said. I'm going to break. The, the mold of banks a little bit and getting a little sick of talking about banks. So I'm going to go with Berkshire Hathaway. And I don't own it. And you keep asking me, when are, when are you going to buy Berkshire Hathaway? Why don't you own it? That's how you sound. <laughs> that is, um, that's a really good impression. I know. Thank you. I'm sure the listeners, the listeners probably thought that I was talking right then. You were. Uh, so Berkshire Hathaway, best idea 2014. Market 
talk about the market. Is it overvalued? I don't know. We talked about Oh, is that this. me again? Yeah, no, that's me, actually. <laughs> okay. That was a self-impression. Uh, I think Berkshire Hathaway is kind of a win-win scenario. If the market doesn't have a great year next year, let's say it's flat, I think if we look at Berkshire Hathaway, they're going to continue to generate earnings with all these businesses they have under their umbrella. And even if the multiple that's on the, on the company right now goes down, I think the stock can still have a good year because of the businesses that are underlying. And if the market continues to go higher, they benefit from their portfolio of stocks, of companies that they own, continue to generate cash. So it's hard for me to find a scenario where things look really bad for Berkshire. And that's my best idea. I don't know. What do you think? Let's break the mold and give me your thoughts. It's one of your biggest holdings. Are you still confident? Sure. That's it? Yeah. I, it's such a great collection of businesses. It's, I mean, it's, it's almost like owning a, um, a mutual fund that owns companies that nobody else can own because it owns the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's managed by one of the greatest investors and one of the greatest capital allocators that we've ever seen in Warren Buffett. Uh, the challenge will be eventually Warren Buffett won't be running the company anymore and who comes in and do they do as good of a job as uh, he has. The risk, the risk there is less than it used to be because of the way Buffett has been transitioning this company into being uh, to, to having more uh, of its revenue, of its income generated from the wholly owned businesses uh, rather than just from the, from the stock portfolio. The stock portfolio is still a big deal. Can you think of a scenario where, I, I'm sure there's a scenario, there's obviously a scenario, but it's hard, I'm trying to imagine a scenario where it drastically underperforms the market. Yes, yes. So the, the market's up closing on 30% this year, mm-hmm. right? And Buffett has said before that it, in times when the market is doing really well, uh, Berkshire will often lag uh, because that's not where its strength is. So it's not, it's not out of the question. It's, it's maybe not high probability, but it's not out of the question that we see another 30% gain mm-hmm. next year and maybe another 30% gain the year after that. And the market just goes crazy off into what eventually we could legitimately call a bubble. We're calling this all this like non-bubble stuff, bubbles. Now, if the market went up 30% next year and 30% the year after that, then we're getting closer to bubble territory. That's where I could see Berkshire Hathaway drastically. Let let me rephrase my question. If the market was down 20% next year, can you see a scenario where Berkshire Hathaway is down more than 20%? The the stock? The stock. Because Buffett tracks it based on book value. So you're talking about the stock. Sure. Sure, I could see a scenario. The market, the market doesn't know what it's doing. Okay. The market, come on. We don't know what we're doing. The market's stupid. <laughs> the market's right. stupid. It does weird things sometimes. All right, you're up. All right, my next best idea, this, the theme here is best undercover stock, and this is Platinum Underwriters. Uh, Platinum Underwriters is a insurer, uh, very good, solid insurer, focuses on underwriting profitability, has a good track record of underwriting profitably. You don't have the great investors here that you have at Berkshire Hathaway um, or at another insurer that I'm going to talk about in just a little bit. Um, what you do have, though, is a CEO with a great eye for capital allocation and his ha- has a willingness to aggressively move towards whatever capital allocation area to, to whatever area he believes will provide the best returns. Uh, I'm reminded we talked in an earlier show about some of our favorite books. One of our favorite books was The Outsiders. Mm-hmm. talks a lot about capital allocation. 
Um, so that's a big part of the reason why I like Platinum. Over the past eight quarters, uh, because, of, uh, because he sees opportunity here, over the past eight quarters, uh, Platinum has repurchased $480 million in stock. At the current market cap, that's roughly 30% of the value of the company. Wow. And it's trading at right around tangible book value. So I think it's a very good time for the company to be spending that much on buybacks. Interesting. Now, this is, this is a smaller company. Is that a concern? I mean, nope. what's, the, what's the concern here? Give us something bad. Your best idea. Give us one concern you have with Platinum. A, a concern always with insurance, particularly with long, longer tail insurers. And when I say longer tail, they underwrite uh, risks that take longer to play out. So if you think about an auto insurer, that's a short tail risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write an auto insurance policy and you know very quickly um, how much you're going to have to pay out over it. Longer tail insurers write insurance policies and then it could be years before they see that uh, insurance policy come home to roost if it does. So with any kind of long tail insurer, you have the, the, the possibility that they're writing insurance that's drastically underpriced mm-hmm. and they end up losing tons of money down the road. Suboptimal. Right. But that's why I look for insurers with a good track record of profitable underwriting. That's key. All right. Your next idea. My last idea. Your last idea. I have no ideas. I'm next idea last. Goldman Sachs. So a lot of big names that I've thrown out here, but hey, what the heck. Goldman Sachs, big <laughs> name out there. One of the most loved names and also most hated names in, in well, finance. Let me point out really quickly that the... the um, Large caps. Large caps continue to lag small caps to, to a, a, a pretty significant extent. Well, not a pretty significant extent, but we've seen small caps performing very well for a long time versus large caps. And, and I think that's why we're seeing a lot of opportunity among the larger caps. So go ahead and continue. Not, not <laughs> much to say here about Goldman. I mean, I, the business of Goldman Sachs is going to do well over time. But if you think about uh, the capital markets business, whether it be fixed income trading, equity, underwriting, and trading, a lot of banks have moved out of this space or reduced their exposure to fixed income. We've seen Morgan Stanley exit a lot of businesses. Goldman Sachs is staying in these businesses. They're gaining more market share. Their margins in the business can improve. They're still the world-class leader when it comes to trading in capital markets. So that makes me happy when I look at the valuation near kind of an all-time low with what the, this business is trading at from a multiple perspective. They're still going to get on the biggest IPOs. They're still going to get on the Twitters of the world, the Facebooks of the world. So longer term, but Goldman Sachs is not going anywhere. They have an attractive valuation, a good leader that I like, that investors like, that employees like. So I'm confident with Goldman Sachs. Say five years down the road, the economy has improved. Banks are starting to get more aggressive again. Goldman Sachs gets very aggressive and starts to lever up its balance sheet and, and is just generally being aggressive with its business. Does that, would that concern you? Potentially. I mean, history tends to repeat itself, but you would hope that there have been some lessons learned here. Um, and I think everything will be under, hopefully, a tighter microscope. They have to get Fed approval for their dividends and their repurchases now. So it's a little bit of a different game than it was uh, beforehand. Okay. My next and final... This better be good. <laughs> My next and final best idea for 2014. The theme is best long-term buy-and-forget, and that is Markel. Uh, Markel is the specialty insurer that... We know, a lot of people know as Baby Berkshire, 
The reason that we know it is Baby Berkshire, Tom Gaynor, uh, Chief Investment Officer over at Markel. Very, very uh, good investor. A lot of people compare him to Warren Buffett. I don't know that he's necessarily all the way there, but he has a great track record at Markel. Markel has the specialty insurance. They have those investment operations, the insurance investment operations that are managed by uh, Gainer. They also have Markel Ventures, which is a way to allocate capital to buying full businesses, very Berkshire-like. In terms of comparing Markel to Berkshire, here's a fun little statistic. Over the past 10 years, Markel has multiplied its tangible book value 3.4 times. That's about 13% per year. And that's what investors are going to want to watch because... Mm -hmm. We talk about tangible book value multiples here. So to the extent that a company is growing its tangible book value per share, that grows the value of the stock potentially Mm -hmm. as long as the multiple doesn't change. Anyway, 13% per year. Berkshire Hathaway over the past 10 years multiplied tangible book value per share 2.5 times. That's 9.4%. And the winner is? Markel. Markel, that's right. Well, they were starting at a smaller base, so I'll give Buffett some credit. Oh, I always give, I, we're always giving Buffett credit. For this once, I'm giving Tom Gaynor the credit over Berkshire and Buffett. I'll give you a scenario here. We're not playing investing chicken, but <laughs> Warren Buffett no longer with Berkshire Hathaway. Let's say that happens. Uh-huh. And they call up Tom Gaynor and say, hey, we want you to come run one of the portfolios at Berkshire Hathaway, leave Markel. How does that make you feel about Markel? He's not going to do it. First of all. No, I'm saying he will do it. He's doing it. <laughs> he's not going to do it. They say, we're offering you $3 billion a day in salary. <laughs> Can you come over? What, do you, what are your thoughts on Markel? Well, then I'm shorting Berkshire Hathaway that they're paying $3 billion a day for a portfolio manager. Markel without Tom Gaynor is significantly less attractive. But Tom Gaynor doesn't run the insurance operations. Mm-hmm. And a big part of Bar- Markel's uh, attraction is that they do have... Uh, a very good insurance operation, uh, underwrites profitably, has a very conservative approach to that business. So I, I'm not necessarily selling Markel on that news. I, it would temper my expectations, but it doesn't make me an immediate seller. All right. That's all. Got any other? Uh, what do you got to think of a good... That's all. <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, how about... Uh... All right. <laughs> because such great stock picks. I guess nine ideas there for you. Nine, nine, ideas. nine ideas for your watch list. Check them out. Ten if you consider our double up. Yep. JP right. Morgan times two. That's all we got for this show. Uh, you can email us, WTMI at fool.com, or you can find us on Facebook. We're at Motley Fool Financial Services Coverage on Facebook. That's a, quite a mouthful. It is. Email us your best ideas. Yes. Email us your best ideas, WTMI at fool.com. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. We will see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.